The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by Cleveland Clinic, ranked number one in the nation in heart care 24 years in a row, according to U.S. News & World Report. For information on the complex cases treated at Cleveland Clinic or to get a second opinion, visit clevelandclinic.org slash heartcare. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, March 13th. In today's news, the FAA refuses to ground the type of Boeing aircraft that went down in Ethiopia. The White House has a secret plan to stop the Senate from passing its resolution of disapproval. And Barack Obama's administration really dropped the ball on the fentanyl crisis. But first, the big idea. The system was rigged. 50 people, including actresses Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin, were charged yesterday with allegedly participating in a multi-million dollar scheme to get their children admitted to prestigious colleges. The allegations include cheating on entrance exams and bribing college officials to say certain students were athletic recruits when those students were not in fact athletes at all. Numerous schools were targeted, including Georgetown, Yale, Stanford, the University of Texas, and the University of Southern California. In Boston, U.S. Attorney Andrew Lelling called it the largest ever college admissions scam prosecuted by the Justice Department. Of the 50 people charged in what the FBI called Operation Varsity Blues, 33 were parents. The feds warned that the investigation is ongoing and others could still be charged. The scheme's main architect, William Singer, pleaded guilty and has been cooperating with investigators since September. Officials described Singer as a well-connected college admissions advisor and say he disguised the bribery scheme as a charity, enabling parents to deduct the bribes from their taxes. Singer was charged with taking about $25 million bucks from 2011 to 2018. He used some of the money to pay college coaches and standardized testing officials for their help. He pocketed the rest. The complaint lays out how Singer guaranteed admission to his wealthy clients for set prices. In the transcript of one recorded conversation, Singer tells a father that he can get his daughter a score on the ACTs in the 30s and on the SATs in the 1400s, if he pays $75,000. In another taped conversation, he assures a parent that his daughter can apply to a university as a water polo player, even though she doesn't know how to play water polo. The price for that was $50,000. Singer pleaded guilty Tuesday to conspiracy charges for racketeering, money laundering, and obstruction of justice. Prosecutors say that a month after he came to the government side, Singer tipped off several people who were under investigation about the inquiry which is what earned him that obstruction charge. After the charges were unveiled, several of the implicated college coaches were fired or put on leave. Stanford fired its head sailing coach after he agreed to plead guilty as part of the case. Prosecutors also charged Georgetown's former head tennis coach. He had moved on to Rhode Island. Authorities say he made $950,000 promoting several students as potential tennis recruits when they didn't even know how to play tennis. Some of the money was allegedly directed to a USC athletics department official and the water polo coach there. USC said last night both have been fired. It's a sad reminder that America, despite the myths we so often tell ourselves, is not quite the meritocracy that you and I want it to be. But maybe, just maybe, yesterday's indictments will help our society take one small step toward a more level playing field for the hardworking kids who don't come from money and who don't cut corners. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the Federal Aviation Administration is standing by its decision not to ground the type of Boeing aircraft that went down in Ethiopia. 
with the European Union and others following China's move to bar flights by some of the American aviation giant's most important planes. Former transportation safety officials say the FAA risks losing its status as the world's aviation safety leader. Boeing's CEO convinced President Trump in a phone call on Tuesday to let his plane stay in the sky. Senior administration officials say the president's decision wasn't final and that he's scheduled to have more meetings today with advisors. Meanwhile, a growing chorus of lawmakers from both parties on Capitol Hill is demanding that Trump ban the planes from U.S. airspace for now, including Mitt Romney and Elizabeth Warren. Ted Cruz, the chairman of a Senate subcommittee on aviation, promised to quickly hold a hearing to investigate the crashes. And we're learning that commercial pilots had repeatedly complained about the anti-stall feature of the new 737 MAX 8 to federal authorities for months in the lead up to Sunday's crash. The pilots complained they weren't being adequately trained on how to use it, but nothing was done. Number two, the White House and several Republican senators are privately negotiating a deal that could lead to the surprising defeat of a Democratic resolution later this week rejecting Trump's emergency declaration at the border. Key to quelling the GOP revolt is legislation drafted by Mike Lee, the Republican from Utah. He wants to generally claw back emergency powers that Congress has given to the White House over the past few decades. That would give Republicans who are uneasy about the constitutionality of the February declaration to build the wall, yet who are nervous about publicly rebuking Trump, some political cover so that they could side with the president despite their personal objections. Although four Republican senators have already announced they'll vote to nullify the president's declaration, one of them, Tom Tillis from North Carolina, indicated last night after a private meeting with Vice President Pence that he could change his position if there's a deal to revise the 1976 National Emergencies Act. Tillis defecting could kill the resolution in the Senate. Number three, Barack Obama's administration failed to act on four years of dire warnings about fentanyl as tens of thousands of Americans died from overdoses of the powerful opioid. My colleagues Scott Higgum, Sari Horwitz, and Katie Zezema have been investigating for months how the government dropped the ball here. Their story came out this morning. It shows how the CDC first learned about the crisis in the spring of 2013. Overdose deaths had spiked at the state morgue in Providence, Rhode Island, and the health department was stunned to learn when toxicology reports showed that 12 people who overdosed had died from fentanyl. The CDC was alerted immediately. Then the next year, former Attorney General Eric Holder received a briefing on fentanyl, but didn't take action. Former DEA agents said they provided Holder with a personal briefing that included a 30-slide PowerPoint presentation. Holder's former spokesman says it was up to the DEA to make specific asks for action, not for the Attorney General to come up with something. Ten months after that briefing, Holder left the administration. By then, fentanyl was spreading across the country. But administration officials rejected a plea in early 2016 from a group of 11 leading national experts to declare fentanyl a public health emergency. That would have made key resources available. Senator Ed Markey, a Democrat from Massachusetts, personally urged Obama to take action on fentanyl during a flight on Air Force One in March 2016. The two were flying to Atlanta to speak at the National Prescription Drug Abuse Summit. The senator used that FaceTime to tell the president that he had to do something. It took 10 more months. In the final week of his administration, Obama finally called fentanyl a national crisis. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, March 13th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.